Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts on the channel. And today we're talking to Robert Baker about his new book just out from MIT Press, The Structure of Moral Revolutions, Studies of the Changes in the Morality of Abortion, Death, and the Bioethics Revolution. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for inviting me. Um, Bob, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Ah, um, so I grew up, uh, I was the son of a welfare mom, uh, a widow. She was a widow. And uh, I grew up in a uh, housing project in the Bronx. And you should know that the neighborhood I grew up in was uh, sort of innocently racist, sexist, homophobic, um, and anti-elitist. It was just part of the culture. Virtually no one went, most, many people didn't finish high school, especially women, girls, and uh, the, and very few of us went to college, and those who went to college we're going to do practical things like engineering or teaching uh, where you could transform your degrees into something that made a living. So um, I was the first one in my immediate family to uh, go to college. It was the City College of New York. I thought I was going to be a historian. I was uh, taught by people who were basically refugees from the Holocaust or from Eastern Europe. Uh, after the Holocaust, after from Soviet Eastern Europe, and they had names like Helen Verzhovsky, Hans Jonas, and they brought with them uh, the better parts of European culture. And I, when I talked to my historian professors, I kept asking them questions that they did not know how to answer. And they said, you should go to study philosophy, get a master's in philosophy. So um, I discovered that there was a center for uh, the philosophy of science at the University of Minnesota. And when I made contact, they told me that in their view, history was um, retrodiction. It was the science of retrodiction. You had a hypothesis, you tried, you tried it out, and you, you see, see if you could uh, verify or falsify it using historical data. And if history were written that way, it would be a form of social science. And if I was to understand history that way, they would welcome me. So uh, I, I, I said, sure. And what did I know? Um, and and uh, my, I, I had just got married. Um, I had an odd relationship w- w- with uh, college. I didn't always think I 
even in City College that I fit in. I wanted to be a writer. I dropped out and I spent some time at the New Yorker as a kind of office boy promoted to, ha- to fact checker, uh, checker. And on my way back from work one time, I ran into a girl from the neighborhood. She was asleep. I woke her up, uh, reintroduced myself, and we ended up getting married while I was still, when I had just graduated and she was still in college. And so the two of us headed off to uh, Minnesota. We had two cats, one suitcase, uh, about two or three months rent and um, some vague scheme that uh, we w- I would work my way through graduate school and she was very, had worked her way through college as a stenographer secretary and we'd somehow make it through. And it was an interesting experience. We kind of did make it through. I had, she got her undergraduate degree, studied under some New York abstract expressionist, which was an interesting experience. And I studied under logical empiricist and uh, went through anti-empiricism and various sorts of things. But one of the things that I read now, Kuhn's second edition of Kuhn, actually the first one that was publicly published, was a was published by the logical empiricist in their encyclopedia project. And oh, this is the, this is Thomas Kuhn. Thomas right? Kuhn, right. Okay. And the structure, his structure of scientific of scientific revolutions, was one of their publications. Uh, given the way they thought. So Herbert Feigl, uh, one of the the logical empiricists, were a new name for people once had the dreaded name of logical positivists. Um, so uh, as young men in the 1920s, they were taking a stance and believed in scientific philosophy. And many of them were socialists, others who were Jewish, some were both, and they had to flee their leader had been assassinated, and they had to flee from um, the, the Nazis, basically. And they welcomed me, and uh, I had an incredible education, in part was reading Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions. The, the leader of the, uh, the, the director of the uh, philosophy of science Institute Herbert Feigl did again rebelled against the standard view of the empiricists that ethics was merely emoting. He had this theory that it had a structure in the sense that it was cognitively reconstructable and um, that it could be phrased as uh, as a rational structure that that was created for pragmatic reasons to help people get along. When I was his student, when I was there, this was never published. It was published in the 1980s as part of his papers. I don't know if it ever was published in his lifetime. At any rate, I rediscovered the publication much later. Um, so I had the background. One, one other thing. Uh, my graduate schools were, and my first teaching jobs, 
were peppered with what I now call moral revolutions. That is, they were uh, uh, anti-war protests. I was on the nonviolent protester side. I led nonviolent protests, and uh, I taught when I was a professor down in Iowa. Many of my students were were uh, jailed, and so I. Uh, they were going to be thrown out of the University of Iowa, according to the administration, unless they attended classes the next day. So I taught a class in the prison and the, the, the local jail, which was a, an odd experience. And uh, my wife was discriminated against. She wanted to be an artist. And I saw how what we call um, structural sexism militated against her uh, own progress, and I began to involve with what was called women's rights movements. I published in the underground press, and I was personally familiar with what it was like to challenge a received uh, structure. One of the pieces I wrote in the underground, I, I, I was... This discharge from the University of Iowa. I found a job at, at Wayne State University in Detroit. And there I uh, got involved with the underground press again and did a piece that grew. I, I was teaching pro bono for in uh, all black high schools at night because there was a demand for education uh, in response to some riots that had affected and effectively shut down the city of Detroit. And community leaders came to me, so I was teaching. And out of that experience, I wrote a piece called um, Pricks and Checks. Those were in single quotes because they were just the word, a plea for persons in single quotes for a feminist publication. I usually wrote these things anonymously, but I knew the editor personally, and she published it using my name. When I came up for tenure, this was given as evidence of my unprofessional conduct. Um, and so I uh, was denied tenure at the, the university, at Wayne State University. And what I did, being young, naive, and idealistic, I took that article and stuff unpublishable in philosophy, but publishable in oddball journals, made a little collection and sent them uh, around to future employers. Um, and people, and a handful of people were interested in me, mainly because I had a reputation as a really good teacher who could fill up classrooms. And uh, and one of them, Union College in Schenectady in New York, made me an offer. And it seemed to my wife, who came along on all the job interviews, to be less, more realistic for me than any of the other job offers I was getting. And so we came to Schenectady, New York, to a little private college uh, which was semi-elitist and is alien from anything I'd ever experienced, as uh, you could imagine. There was this boy from the Bronx who had managed to get a PhD somehow. 
uh, who was used to teaching in state universities, who didn't have to dress, to dress in any way. And this was a blue blazer, uh, Chino place where you were supposed to wear a tie and uh, the fraternity boys uh, addressed you as sir, and which had just begun admitting uh, women and the admissions of women into that culture just busted it apart. Uh, and I was there to witness it, which was, again, kind of neat. Um, because in Detroit, I had advocated for patient, the rights of mental patients and other patients and had gotten involved into a trial of, a, of an attempted uh, amygdalotomy, a psychosurgery on a criminal sexual psychopath. Um, I came to the notice of the people who were starting bioethics, and they recruited me for some fellowships and from for, they cultivated me. And I got a, some fellowship. I also got a, a year-long NIH grant, an uh, NEH grant, and um, I got invited to participate in an encyclopedia that was founding the field. So I, in effect, was able to learn to watch how over a half century bioethics became a field. Um, how and. I was a kind of participant observer in the process. That's really fascinating because that you lived through some of these revolutions that you write about because um, reading the book, um, you wouldn't necessarily get that. It's a very, you, you offer kind of a very dispassionate um, analysis of them. Um, how did you come to write the structure of moral revolutions? This is obviously um, this is not your first book. Um, so why, why does it come now at this, this stage in your career? Um, oh, well, I'm going to do this in parts. Um, when I, so Larry McCullough, who's a fellow bioethicist, who's philosophically <clears throat> educated, uh, I'm going to take a sip of tea for a moment. Um, Larry McCullough and I got an NEH grant to develop the first global history of medical ethics, including bioethics. We worked on the project for 12 years. We got people from all over the world, historians and bioethicists and medical ethicists and doctors interested in the history of medicine to collaborate with us. We got a Japanese and a Chinese physician to give their perspectives on the Japanese medical experiments on, uh, on the Chinese during World War II. And we got both, uh, both perspectives on it and were able to put them side by side. A lot of the time, the collaborations that we envisioned uh, collapsed. We attempted to have a life cycle uh, um, uh, approach to developing histories of, of medical ethics, people writing about birth, about uh, the clinic, about people dying, and so on. And uh, during that process, as I was reading stuff from a Spanish physician medical ethicist, um, he was writing about 
a revolution, a pre-revolutionary and post-revolutionary thought in 18th century, 17th century Spain. And the way he wrote about it just reminded me of Kuhn. Um, now, a little bit after that, I was I was uh, at um, our Kaplan's uh, pride, uh, master's program, Bioethics Center in, at University of Pennsylvania, and he and I were chatting about our kind of biographical experiments experiences in bioethics, and he and I both agreed it sounded very Kuhnian with us. It, we didn't do anything about it, but the book that came out of celebrate one of the books that came out of our collaboration was about the what we called the American medical ethics revolution, which was a history of how of organizational ethics, AMA ethics in uh, medical ethics, and from its birth in 150 years from that point to the present. And that just lingered in our remnants, uh, in our memory, so to speak. We didn't do anything with it. And then when I was writing a book called uh, Before Bioethics, A History of Medical Ethics Before the, on, the Coming of Bioethics, uh, I was reading Midwives' Oaths, a part that, given the male chauvinist orientation of uh, medical historians, had they didn't mention it, it had been left out of all the history books. So I wanted to start with that. And when I was reading about them, I realized that I was undoing a sexist presentation of history that was standard. And again, it struck me how relevant Kuhn's writing were, how one paradigm obsolesces others. And when I was coming to the last chapter of that book, I was thinking of writing this out as a little chapter on the structure of moral revolutions generally. And then I realized that project was too controversial and too big to be put at the end of this book. So I put it aside. Um, and then I was thinking about what to do next. And I said, look, I've got this unfinished project. Why don't I turn it into a book? I've been working with Peter O'Lean at the uh, at Oxford University Press. He kind of liked the idea, but he couldn't find people willing to uh, to go with it, to, to give it a serious review. And while he was kind of in favor of the project, but couldn't quite figure out how to get it approved and published, I mentioned the uh, project to my old friend, friend Art Kaplan in an elevator at an ASBH thing and talked about how frustrating it was for me not to be able to get it off the ground. And he said, you know, I got a bioethics uh, theory with MIT Press. I bet I could get you published. And so I said, all I got is a proposal and a couple of, you know, oddball writings that I start. And he said, send the stuff to me. I'll get it published. A couple well, of months later. 
a couple of months later, I had a, co- a contract. And 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 there's the book. And now now I'm I'm holding the, I am holding the book. Um, let's talk a little bit about the structure of the structure of moral revolutions. Um, how does um, your argument? How's your the argument that you make in this book distinct from most, um, or from existing histories of bioethics? Well, um, so the standard history was by Al Johnson, and um, Al Johnson was one of the founders, uh, He one of the people who conceived bioethics. He, uh, there were a group of people, uh, Dan Callahan, uh, what's his name, his partner at Hastings, and Albert Johnson, uh, who, who thought there ought to be something like bioethics before bioethics got started. Um, and... Um, what he did was held a conference called the birth of bioethics and he put all the materials from the conference together in the form of a monograph that traces it in more or less chronologically uh, and breaks it down by various types of things that happened so that is a, a sort of newspaper amalgamation history of bioethics it gives you the names, the dates, the participant, this is what happened. And it's kind of chronological. This happens where and when. And he hazards a few guesses about why it it happens, but that's it. Um, Then there is a very perceptive summary of the birth of bioethics by, um, well, I'm not thinking of their names, by a team, She's at the university. At any rate, uh, they give one, and Rosemary Stevens and I'm blocking. Um, they have this little summary in, in in their book on on bioethics, and it's again it's a succinct overview of the chronology that shows that that touches on some of the the motivations and some of the sociological implications, but really takes it as something all by itself. And I thought that was A, unhistorical, and B, uninsightful in many ways, all these approaches. There were also debunking histories, people mainly by social scientists who do not believe that bioethics was anything other than a PR stunt by philosophers to get themselves jobs based on medical ethics, which was nothing more than a PR stunt by doctors to get themselves legitimated, have more patients. I mean, this is a kind of caricature of all these views, but the caricature, like, I believe it's an accurate caricature. Um, There are lots of people who would dispute that. And so how how is your account um, different from these other accounts? First, what are the, oh, go ahead. One. First, I believe that there, that there have been moral revolutions throughout the history of the world. Secondly, I believe that there were moral revolutions in medicine uh, and specifically in medical ethics. 
And I believe that bioethics is just the latest iteration of these, these revolutions. And that I believe it stands with the feminist revolutions, uh, first phase, second phase, um, the uh, African-American civil rights revolution, um, and its latest iteration, iteration is Black Lives Mover, uh, Movement, Matter Movement. Um, and I think they all fit a, insofar as they, they're successful, they all fit a pattern characterized by Coons in his analysis of scientific revolutions. Right. So, so, um, so the bioethics revolution is just one among a, a series of moral revolutions in, in this account. Um, what are the characteristics of a moral revolution? They're, I'm, they're, according to, to you, they're the same as, as the characteristics of a scientific revolution, right? Okay. So let me start with logical empiricism again. So logic, the logical empiricist has um, had this view that a scientific theory was either supported or falsified by empirical data, and falsification might lead to a new search. This was all external factors that would lead you to consider a new theory. So five years before Kuhn wrote the structure of uh, scientific revolutions, he had completed a book called On the Copernican Revolution. What Kuhn came across in writing his book on the Copernican Revolution was that mo what motivated Copernicus to develop his alternative theory was not external data that didn't fit, it was the incoherence of traditional geocentric accounts of the movement of solar objects, object, of uh, stellar objects, of objects of stars and planets and so on. And he, the, uh, he, he recognized that this was an anomaly, something that did not fit. And so he sought for a better explanation, something that made everything fit as to why one would develop an alternative. Kuhn looked for an alternative explanation of why one would abandon a traditional theory for another. So first of all, there had to be an anomaly, something that does not fit. Uh, the, one of the things that struck me in going back to my own experience as a, as a child getting uh, charity care uh, and uh, that came up in the, in the Patients' Bill of Rights was the, at the fact that if you were going for charity care, there were no, or welfare care, charity became welfare later, there was no place to sit and there were no appointments so as a result, you showed up early in the morning and you waited for an entire day or two or three days to be seen by a doctor. When um, the National Welfare Rights Organizations joined with a feminist group to petition for patients' rights, one of the first things that they demanded was something seemingly trivial, 
the right to an appointment in advance. Somebody had actually noticed something that didn't fit. Supposedly benign charitable institutions were frittering away people's time as if their time didn't count or the people didn't count, which was far from benign. So you need a dissonant, you need an anomaly, and you need some glimmer of some alternative way of organizing things in terms of patients' rights for the bioethics revolution, in terms of heliocentrism for the Copernican revolution. So if you've got dissidents and you and they recognize an anomaly and they've got an alternative paradigm, if the alternative paradigm can be fitted into and reconciled uh, with the traditional paradigm, you've got a reform, a way of making the traditional paradigm better. If it's incompatible with the traditional paradigm, you have what Kuhn called a revolution. In his case, the scientific revolution. In the case of bioethics, a bioethical revolution a revolution against widespread, uh, actually male, white, Christian paternalism that relegated ordinary folks, African-Americans, religious minorities, to uh, this large pool of people who didn't deserve an appointment in advance. All right? To talk about the new paradigm, you need new concepts. Uh, for, or you need to change old concepts. So one of the things you'd have to do if you hold heliocentrism, you'd have to reconceive the earth. It was no longer the center of the universe. It was merely another planet that is a wanderer. Whereas under the old geocentric system, they called the sun a planet because they used the word planet to mean anybody traveling in the heavens, moving in the heavens around the earth. So there would be linguistic change. There would be conceptual change. But to win out against the traditional um, uh, paradigm, you also need new ways of measuring what counts as something that's benign in the case of the bioethics revolution, or what counts as a theory in the case of the Copernican revolution. So you're going to get new theories. You've got to disseminate them. You've got to convert new adherence to your theories. And these new theories will generate new rules or laws, either in the sciences or in morality, the patient's bill of rights. Uh, you became HIPAA, the right to uh, confidentiality in the bioethics re revolution. And as Kuhn point out, this is generally gets communal um, acceptance if it resolves problems recognized by everyone in the community. In the case of the astronomical community, geocentrism did not give you a proper meaning of the length of the year. And as soon as Galileo developed a, uh, a carnival toy into a telescope, it did not explain the, the presence of uh, moons around 
what the planet Jupiter. And so it had to be obsolesced. And as it's obsolesced, all the old language, all the old tech terminologies, and all the various forms of knowledge that were part of these, they get junked into the history books and the communal acceptance or a large part of communal acceptance becomes the working uh, accepted theory by power brokers, influencers, and the people are going to move either morality or science along. Does that make a more or less coherent uh, explanation of the book and it, yes, it, it does. And and you've already you've talked a little. You've already talked about how um, how you know how you came to write about the bioethics revolution, um, but that's just one of of several moral revolutions that the book covers. Um, how did you select the moral revolutions that to discuss in the book? I, you you probably had a lot of choices. So um, why did you choose the ones that you did? Um, I started out by targeting four revolutions and two, and initially one reform, and then later two. Um, The four revolutions, two from the 19th century, one was the conversion of um, corpses from sacrosanct to utilitarian objects, um, which was very important for the growth, uh, which was an amazing thing in its time. That was the first in the 19th century. And the second in the 19th century was the immoralization and criminalization of abortion in the United States. Um, it's not generally recognized, but more or less, um, abortion was an accepted uh Pre-quickening abortion was an accept. Quickening means the time when a mother feels fetal movements. Uh, prior to quickening, it was believed from Aristotle's times onward there was nothing alive in the in the uterus. It was inert flesh waiting to get a spirit. And what is not alive cannot be killed. And so abortion was permissible morally and legally prior to quickening. In the 19th century, this began to change uh, for because of the stethoscope, which allowed people to hear the field heartbeat. And because of demographic urges in the aftermath of various wars, the Civil War in the United States, the European wars between Britain and France and Europe, uh, and various revolution, anti, and anti-revolutionary movements. And uh, this led to an emphasis on demography because um, there was a transformation from elite armies of mercenaries to armies that were recruited on en masse uh, and an innovation that came in with the French Revolution of 1789. And this meant that you need to have more able-bodied men to form your army, and hence demographics were necessary to national success. Um, So you had these movements to wanting to have more children. You had a a the ability to 
challenge the idea that the fetus was inert flesh before quickening, and these two conjoined to uh, lead to the immoralization and criminalization of uh, pre-quickenation uh, of abortions at any stage of life throughout Europe and uh, Latin America and in the United States in the 19th century. So I had these two revolutions, the, the uh the secularization of corpses as utilitarian objects and the immoralization and criminalization of abortion as targets for the 19th century. And then I wanted to take to 20th century. Uh, I wanted the 19th century because they were distant. And so you couldn't say that I was somehow biased because I had witnessed or participated in these revolutions. And then I chose to 20th century revolutions, the bioethics revolutions and the decriminalization and re-moralization. It was not morally permissible of abortion as my targets for those, especially. And in all four cases, I, I wanted to choose areas in which I had fine grain knowledge. I didn't want to the danger is that you impose a pattern, you make stuff fit. And I wanted to be able to deal with what I knew would be exceptions so that I could see if the theory still worked. I mean, this comes from my logical empiricist chain, uh, training. I wanted to test the theory against um, seemingly recondite empirical data to see whether or not I was imposing it on the data or whether or not it could still handle these seemingly counter these seeming counterexamples. And that was a minimum requirement of sort of intellectual integrity. So that's how I chose the cases. I originally only wanted one case of moral reform, um, Knott's attempt to ban to ban dueling, which worked in the North, but not in the antebellum South. Of course, I could show from his sermons that he preserved the old um, paradigm of dueling as an artifact of honor, um, and yet uh, gave wanted to mitigate its harm uh, and gave you mitigation reasons uh, without ever directly challenging the notion of what a gentleman was and what honor was. So it was it was a nice example. But then working in the woman's uh, library in London, I, uh, by sheer chance, came uh, across this uh, uh, controversy, this reform movement in Britain about uh, women's right to pee. And I also am one of the commentators on the first draft of, of, uh, of, the, uh, of uh, the structure of moral revolution pointed out to me that, uh, Knott's, that the reform of bastardy in Britain took a different form than that in the United States. So I had to investigate what looked like a counterexample. So I ended up taking a look at a whole series of reforms. That well, the book has these really handy um, charts throughout that make the arguments um, really, your argument easy to follow and the different historical examples sort of um, 
clear to, you know, to keep track of them. Um, and so, uh, so, so yeah, so, so each of the historical examples you use, we, we there's a little chart that talk, that talks about how it fits or does not fit the 13 criteria, right? Necessary characteristics. Now I, I will say, so I had six external reviewers uh, for the book. I mean, uh, MIT got three uh, who were very positive with some hesitations. So when I sent the manuscript out, they got three different reviewers who were ecstatic. And one of the recommendations of the first set of three from the first three sets were to have these tables that enabled some to track the argument in that way. So uh, that was, I mean, all six reviewers uh, improved the manuscript and I gave them all a great deal of credit. Well, I found the tables to be very helpful, very handy, probably good if anybody's picking up the book and wants to use one of these examples in teaching. Um, anyway, I, so so thanks to that reviewer. Um, in, in scientific revolutions, um, scientists are, are in part responsible for driving the revolutions forward. What role do philosophers play in moral revolutions? Well, um, the interesting thing about moral revolutions is that, um, so I, I did mention that Helen Verashevsky, a medieval historian, was one of my teachers and role models as an undergraduate, and she's Polish. Um, I think Polish-Jewish, but she never said whether she was Jewish or not, but she had to flee the Holocaust, so I kind of su- suspect she was. But at any rate, she had all the pride of a Pole, and, you know, this meant Chopin, this meant, uh, this meant the music, this meant the art, this meant the literature. And so I was familiar as an undergraduate with her use of the word intelligentsia. And it, it meant not only intellectuals, but, um, but people who wanted to take what they knew intellectually and somehow put it into real practice. And the Polish intelligentsia were resisting the Russification of Poland. They were trying to defend Polish culture. And it struck me that, all, that Bentham, who is one of the heroes of the a much misunderstood philosopher, who's one of the heroes of, uh, of the book. Um, and virtually every one of these uh, wanted to make the moral, moral revolutionaries, if they were artists, if they were musicians, if they made a flag, uh, as in the gay rights revolution, they wanted to take their uh, ideas and put them into practice. Now, with respect to philosophers, many of the ideas that they took, like Bentham's, originated from the pen, the typewriter, or the computer of a philosopher. Um, there's a standard riff uh, by um, 
what I call anti-intellectual elites. Uh, I, I took on any number of them and quoted them uh, that philosophy is, you know, an intellectual parlor game uh, that's essentially useless. And that just does not stand up under historical scrutiny. It's uh, Thomas Jefferson's enlightened plagiarism of, um, of John Locke that forms the Declaration of Independence. In some cases, word for word from Locke's writing and the four um, uh, liberties, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that become part of uh, the American ideology are lifted directly out of Hume's second treatise of government and of uh, one of his works on, uh, on uh, um, essay on, on uh, human under, I've got the essay wrong, one of the, the uh, epistemological essay, essays, but they are lifted directly from philosophers. Uh, utilitarianism was conceived first by David Hume, modernized by, and then applied by Jeremy Bentham. He does not claim to have come up with it, although he weaponized it as a weapon of critique against traditionalism throughout Britain. Um, and one of the examples I give is how philosophers are influenced by, um, by uh, popular movements, how uh, uh, Helen, sorry, Harriet, Harriet Mill takes the, uh, the Declaration of Sentiments from the first um, feminist contra conference in upstate New York, the Seneca De Declaration, I believe. And she takes it and she refashions it. It's originally based on the American Bill of Rights, and she refashioned it it as a utilitarian document to make it palatable for Britain. So she's a woman philosopher. She recognizes that this is this can make feminism practical, and she takes it in an essay published, unfortunately, under her husband's name or anonymously. Uh, she takes that um, that and she weaponizes it and makes it part of the feminist revolution in Britain. So yeah, philosophers are integral. The, the a slogan I took from Kuhn is basically that our intellectual natures will not abide a vacuum. He's, uh, he's quoting Aristotle and reshaping it. And if they don't abide a vacuum, you cannot beat any established paradigm without an alternative. Did I mention what would you like to discuss paradigms, by the way? Um, I, no, I don't think we have talked about paradigms do you yet. Want, do you want to? Sure. <laughs> At the heart of, who, of Kuhn's theory is pattern, paradigm change. Uh, if you think about the vision of the geocentric vision of the world, um, it's got, you know, and it's religious overtones. The idea is that the earth is the center of creation. 
and that we are special creatures because we were given dominion of it by a benign of the earth, by a benign creator. And this creator has created the day and night by giving us the sun to see by during the day and the might and the moon to see by at night some of the time and given us darkness for for rest. And this creator created the universe for us. And if you're Christian, create gave us part of himself, his only son, and then sacrificed that part to redeem us. This is a powerful view. And the astronomy of geocentrism is, is simpatico with it. It reflects us. It reinforces that in every way. So when Copernicus comes along and demotes the earth to a mere, uh, a mere planet and makes the sun the center of the solar system, this upsets this paradigm, not only of geocentric astronomy, but the paradigm that's central to the Judeo-Christian vision of the world. And so what happens is it was viewed as heresy. Now, a paradigm is, according to Kuhn, a way of seeing the world a way of structuring, a kind of what he calls it. It's like a a ruling in common law. You don't use it exactly, but it serves as a model for how to see things or address things or work on things in the future. So it is a um, a nebulous, uh, uh, vague concept. But vague concepts, as Wittgenstein pointed out to my generation, of uh, philosophers are often more useful because they're vague and less determined than certain contexts, than clearly defined contexts, which are also also very narrow and less useful. So it's, it's this vague idea. And in the case, it's very easy to grasp the difference between the heliocentric and the geocentric paradigms or between seeing the world from a male point of view, in which you go out and earn a living, you're the breadwinner, and you are in charge of a household which is domestic, but within that domestic sphere, it is served by women, and a feminist point of view, which is inherently egalitarian and puts men and women uh, equally and has problems, therefore, for men and women with work-life balance. That makes uh, a, the notion of a paradigm reasonably clear. Right. So so, um, so philosophers um, drive, you know, or the intelligentsia, um, you know, thinkers help drive moral revolutions forward. You are a, a philosopher, Um and um, you're writing about several different moral revolutions. Are you, what side are you on? Which paradigm do you buy into? Can you, I mean, is, do you have, it, it's got to be the one that wins, right? Um, not necessarily. Um, I, uh, 
So it, it won out in the bioethics revolution, although I believe that COVID is going to challenge the uh, pillars of the bioethic, bioethics revolution and force bioethics to uh, be transformed if it's going to survive. Um, that's a, a, another discussion. Um, but I was, I, because of mis- maltreatment of my wife, I was a woman's rights. Um, and because of my mother's experience as a, as a welfare uh, widow, and actually my son was born on welfare too, because uh, when we were students, we didn't have any money. Um, um, uh, I, I was on the welfare rights, women's rights side, feminist revolution side, um, even before uh, um, they were winning. In fact, the, it, it was a, a feminist, an article published in a feminist, underground feminist magazine that got me uh, fired from uh, a, a university job. And when I went looking for the job at, at my present college, uh, I only uh sent them my, I didn't send them any of my respectable writings. I took my underground press writings and this sort of thing, put my name on it proudly, and they hired me anyway. So I didn't want to work in any place that wouldn't tolerate me writing that sort of stuff. So I was only often on the losing side of revolutions until they won. And I'm not sure how permanent all these victories will be. I mean, right now we're on the verge, it seems to me, of uh, we're teetering on the verge of recriminalizing um, pre-quickening abortions, at least uh, first trimester abortions. And uh, there is a certainly uh, uh, a, an anti-Me Too movement, an anti-feminist movement that's gathering force. And... Um, there is an attempt to roll back all um, all the, the Obama's um, Affordable Care Act. So, so then, in in, in your point of view, um, the the thing that is moral, the what is moral is not just whatever is the dominant paradigm. Some paradigms are more moral than others. Uh, there's a kind of Yes, but uh, we're inherently blinded to them. So let me take out the part you're going to like, which is the yes, and then the part that you're not going to like, which is the our inherent blindness. Um, I was a partisan in all kinds of revolutionary movements of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and certainly uh, and the 90s, and contributed to them in minor ways. I'm, uh, I, I shouldn't, you know, if, if you think of uh, a revolution as having the great people leading the charge and a placard carrier behind them, I was, for the most part, a placard carrier who wrote little things uh, here and there and a well, participant observer. Um, but my heart was with the people up front. Um, so, but I believe there is an, that the function of morality, 
any morality is to facilitate cooperation and to mitigate conflict. And a morality is more successful than others insofar as it achieves this. And the broader the network of cooperative conduct, uh, the more... uh, the, in some sense, the better, the more effective and better the morality. Um, I'm, what, I'm trying, what I'm trying to get at is towards the end of the book yeah. where you talk about moral relativism yep. and whether sort of the overall arc or argument of the book implies that sort of point of view. It certainly does no, I'm not a moral relativist. Moral relativist says there's no criterion for measuring uh, one morality against another. Uh, and I have the, the more morality is coercively enforced, uh, and the more the laws are coercively enforced, the less more moral the culture. If in fact you have to enslave people coercively, that is prima facie a less moral culture than a one that gets their cooperation cooperation voluntarily if you have to you, if you have to rob people of choice in order to get them to cooperate that's inherently less effective uh, as a morality but the problem is uh, we are all partisans for the morality we accept and so we tend to want to adhere to our, uh, the paradigms we accept or that are traditional. And it's enormously difficult to see around them. Uh, I grew up in a Bronx housing project uh, for poor folks, and it was, it was racist, sexist, homophobic, classist, we knew that these other people were better than us. They just looked better. They smelled better. And we wanted to be one of them and join the upper class. And in my case, in my wife's case, we want to get an education to get out of the projects. Um, so it was, it was all those things. And it's incredibly difficult. I mean, fortunately, City College, where I went to school, is in the middle of Harlem. And I fell in love. You know, I used to... You know, I used to, uh, I worked my way through college. Uh, and after work, I would go and, 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 and listen to the music and listen to and watch all black people going in and out and, you know, fell in love with jazz and with all that. And I, it came to me that the people who created something so beautiful had to be, you know, they, they couldn't be inferior in any way. And so I had to work against the language I used and the, way I was thinking. And that, that's really hard. And I didn't believe I, even though I was racist, I didn't believe I was a racist. Even though I, you know, was, you know, didn't like the way my wife was being treated. It took me a while to re- realize I was actually um, perpetuating sexist tropes and some of my language had to go when I couldn't Shouldn't if I said, "Hey, you guys," I was with the language of the Bronx. That's inherently male, and all sorts of stuff like this. And I had a, some of the things that I published in the underground press were attempt to 
to to fight my way out of this. My uh, pro pro bono taught in African American high schools philosophy, but I really wanted to use the experience to transcend the barrier that uh, that that allowed me to think in ways that I didn't want myself to think. Really hard, and so I want to recognize that while still understanding that certainly retrospectively and sometimes uh, under, recognize in the moment that there are some moralities that are better than others. And that's a hard thing to do. Right. Well, Bob, we... Sorry, I'm a riff on that. We have... No, no, that's that's great. Um, We've taken up a lot of your time. I'm just going to ask one more question before I get to our traditional sort of closing question. Um, And and that is, you know, I, I, I think of... The, the revolutions as you describe them in the book seem to be more or less settled in, in the sense of settled in, into a dominant paradigm. Um, are, are there any moral revolutions that we're in the middle of today? Uh, Black Lives Matter and Me Too. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I, the, the idea of the police as a hostile occupying force as opposed to serving and protecting um, is an important one to grasp. And and I think Black Lives Matter, although defund the police was an absolutely horrible for all kinds of reasons slogan, that they have begun penetrating the uh, understanding of white and dominant intelligentsia, and I think they are making progress. And there will be reform. I'm not sure if there'll be a a moral revolution, but I'm sure there will be moral reform under the Biden uh, presidency, uh, Biden-Harris presidency and vice presidency. Um, I think that Me Too is not, I mean, there's too many times when you can see and feel the, and just watch, um, hey, honey, can you get me some some coffee? Yeah, boss. And I mean, that's from bringing your car into the shop for a repair. And you just watch it on on display, honey, something sweet to consume, um, a male chauvinist trope, uh, get me some, you know, you're domestic, your idea is to get me, I'm too valuable, I'm more, you know, you know, it's still there. Um, and that's not sexual harassment, but it, it reinforces subserviency in all kinds of ways. And it's systemic. And, um, you know, I don't think it's been, it's permeated beyond too deep, even in corporate culture. So, yeah, these are revolutions being fought at the moment. LGBTQ plus, the Q, the Q is, the plus part is, is still being fought. And, um, um, I'm not sure how solid that one is, um, 
at least uh, outside of uh, elite circles and so on. I'm not even sure how much people were are accepting as Harris as vice president. If you look, if you go beyond um, a suburban culture, um, I will say that every since twenty since 2014, every white working class person I interact with, except for a few women, have been Trumpites. Um, that their resentment is what they imbibe and take pride in. Um, and I, I think that's still with us in the society. So I'm not sure how settled these revolutions are. And one of the things I focus on that's absent from from Kuhn is scientific and moral counter-revolutions. And I think that's bubbling up. 70 million people voting for Trump is a warning sign. It's a counter, it's a counter revolution, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Bob, we have taken up a, a quite a bit of your time. Um, I, I am, I'm finally gotten to my final question, which is, what are you working on now? Oh, I'm working on, uh, I'm working on what should be a conventional book. Um, it's called Oaths, Codes, and Scandals, um, the Making of Mo- Making Modern uh, Medical Ethics. So, um, but as I was working on, uh, and it started out very conventionally, um, and as I was working on it, a number of people wanted me to focus on the 75th anniversary of the uh, anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz and uh, wanted me to write about the Nuremberg Code again, uh, which comes out of the Nuremberg uh, work, a doctor's trial. And so I've been rereading that. And some years ago, as a master's project, I had one of my students translate Rahm's textbook, which was the textbook you used in all German medical schools uh, during the Nazi era. And um, he lays out a, me- a medical ethics that, uh, as Robert Prof- Prosper Proctor has written about, Robert Proctor has written about, is the uh, medical ethics of the doctors in the Nazi era. And uh, to quote Kuhn, um, textbooks, are the mechanism by which knowledge is transmitted intergenerationally, and he um, captures that. Uh, The intergenerational dissemination of knowledge of what medical ethics would be in the Nazi era. And reading it, I reread the text of some of the early documents on medical ethics, the precursors to bioethics. And I recognized that bioethics and uh, the medical ethics of the 1950s and 60s, more conventional medical ethics, was actually a reaction to Nazi medical ethics. 
So I'm going to argue that Nazi medical ethics in the next book is not an oxymoron, that there was such a thing, that the Nazis considered it a medical ethics revolution and write about it as such, that it fits my model of moral revolutions, but not the meta model of a good moral revolution, put good in parentheses, and that modern medical ethics was a response to it. And the bioethics revolutions took that part of um, uh, that enfranchises it, legalizes it, when it with its uh, emphasis on patient autonomy and patient rights. So that's the, the narrative arc of the new book. I, I actually have one publisher who's not my last publisher interested in it from me talking about it. He, he, he published some of my old, older stuff, and I think uh, probably my new publisher will be. So I, I'm not... Uh, unusually for me, I don't have to fight all, all sorts of people to get them to believe it might be a good book. I just have to write the thing. Well, Bob, it sounds like a, a fascinating and important project. Um, I want to thank you for, for taking the time to come on the show today. Um, my pleasure to be here. <laughs>